During a tense hearing that included executives from TikTok, X, Snap, and Discord, Mark Zuckerberg, the leader of Meta, told the families of abuse victims he was sorry for everything you have all been through. Now, this was at an explosive judiciary or Senate online child safety hearing that took place on Capitol Hill today. Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, which convened this hearing on online child safety, came to an end without any clear resolutions in sight. And Senator Chuck Grassley is saying the quiet part out loud when today he said that the bipartisan tax bill that has been presented uh, to President Joe Biden looks good, but it could improve Democrats' chances of holding on to the White House in the 2024 election. And because this bill, a passage of the bill, could help Joe Biden uh, and hurt Republicans, that Republicans shouldn't vote for it even though Grassley agrees that this bill would be good for Americans. And the gender gap is growing between supporters of President Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Now, this is according to a new poll, and this is good news for the Democratic incumbent. Biden holds a slight lead over Trump in this Wednesday's 2024 presidential election poll, 50% to 44%. Now, the same matchup was too close to call just a month ago. But in this poll, more women said they would support Biden over Trump, with 58% saying they would back Biden, with 36% saying they would vote for Donald Trump. And Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis and Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade have been subpoenaed to testify at a February 15th hearing about allegations that Willis has financially benefited from appointing Wade as a special counsel on the RICO case involving Donald Trump and 14 other defendants. According to one of the defendants, Michael Roman's attorney, Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis have been involved in a romantic relationship and Fonnie Willis has benefited from payments made from her office to Nathan Wade. The House Oversight and Judiciary Committees announced Wednesday or today that they have scheduled a closed-door transcribed interview with President Joe Biden's brother, James Biden. The interview is going to take place uh, at the end of February, and it is part of a larger effort by Republicans to impeach Joe Biden because of what they claim are his entanglements in his family's financial businesses. Of course, there hasn't been any evidence to support those claims. And Colorado Secretary of State has asked the Supreme Court to conclude that Colorado can lawfully bar former President Trump from the Republican primary ballot because of his actions in 2020 that culminated in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Supreme Court is set to review several cases uh, in which states have determined that Trump is disqualified from being on their ballots because of the January 6th attack. Uh, this Secretary of State, Colorado Secretary of State, has weighed in and she's urging the Supreme Court to keep him off the ballot in her state. And a media personality is worried that the MAGA crowd's attack, including Donald Trump's attack on Taylor Swift because of her relationship with Kelsey Travis, that it could have an enormous uh, negative impact on Donald Trump's presidential campaign. 
according to this media personality, Trump may be waking up a sleeping giant and stirring up Swifties in mass to hit the ballot box and vote for his opponent, Joe Biden, who is courting Taylor Swift's endorsement. According to this personality, uh, that might be a preemptively self-owned, especially since Taylor Swift hasn't yet joined the Biden campaign team. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time, and this is the hour where we go deep, where we dig behind the headlines. And we've been covering the story of the 18-year-old African-American boy who uh, has been wearing dreadlocks, and his school, a Houston-adjacent uh, public school, has essentially uh, told him he can't return to the classroom. He hasn't been in the classroom since August because they say his dreadlocks violates their school dress code policy. Now, the school dress code policy is coming into um, opposition or it's, it's coming into conflict, I should say, with the recently enacted Crown Bill that was passed in the state of Texas and the Crown Bill, the Crown Act, as it is uh, commonly referred to, prevents the discrimination uh, on the basis of hair, both in the workplace and in public schools. And a judge in this case has set a trial to begin in February. So this school district, which filed this lawsuit to try to uh, get a judicial determination that its school policy, its dress code policy was uh, consistent with the Crown Act. The school's going to get to make its arguments before this trial judge, this young teenager, this 18-year-old is going to testify on his own behalf. Uh, and now some national civil rights organizations, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, they've gotten into uh, this conflict. And they weighed in on behalf of this young man and on behalf of the Crown Act. Uh, earlier in the week, we had two of the state representatives who are responsible for sponsoring and getting the Crown Act passed just September of last year in the state of Texas. I'm going to talk to this attorney from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund about what he sees uh, or what they see as the real legal issues that are going to be determined by this trial that's coming up next month. And what does this whole case mean for the Crown Act and enforcement of the Crown Act in other jurisdictions? Stay with us, KBLA Talk 15.8. A Texas judge ordered a trial to begin next month in the case of Daryl George, that is the Houston area teen, who has been suspended from his school for months over the length of his dreadlocks hairstyle. Now, at a hearing that happened uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the judge in this case, his name is Chap Kane, set the trial date for February 22nd. What's so troubling about this case is that Mr. George has remained on in-school suspension uh, since August of last year. Uh, he has faced months of disciplinary action because the school district, Barbers Hill Independent School District, officials say that his hairstyle violates the dress code for male students. Uh, now, the dress code does allow students to wear dreadlocks, but it places limits on the length of male students' hair, which, according to the policy, cannot be worn in a style that would allow the hair to extend below the top of a t-shirt collar. 
below the eyebrows or below the earlobes when let down. Now, the school officials have warned that Mr. George uh, continued violation of the dress code would result in suspension. And they basically have said until he cuts his hair or they get a court ruling to the contrary, he will not be allowed to return to his regular classroom. Uh, this is a troubling case that has gotten national media attention. Uh, just Monday, we had two of the Houston area and Texas uh, state senators on who were responsible for passage of the Crown Act. And the Crown Act is a piece of legislation that's been passed by many states, including California and some cities that prohibits discrimination in the workplace because of natural hairstyles. And you would think in 2024, we wouldn't need a law for Black folks to be able to wear their hair in dreadlocks or braids or you know, any other kind of natural hairstyle, but we do. Uh, and this case of Daryl George is, is really calling into question what does the Crown Act, particularly the Crown Act in the state of Texas, what does it cover? And can a school district policy like this one that says your hair, even if you roll it up, which uh, Daryl George's hair, we've seen photos of him, his hair is in dreadlocks, but he takes them and he rolls them up so they're not falling down below his eyes or his earlobes or onto his collar. But this code says it can't be worn uh, in any style that would allow the hair to extend below the top of a t-shirt collar, the eyebrows, or the earlobes when let down. Uh, joining me now is uh, Patricia Oconta. She is a lawyer with the NAAC Legal Defense Fund, and they've gotten into this lawsuit, which I'm glad to see. And they are standing on the side of this teenager and in support of the Crown Act and an interpretation of the Crown Act that says that he has not violated this school's policy. Uh, thank you for joining, Patricia. You know, I had the two state senators on the show earlier in the week because they know the legislative intent, the legislative history behind the Crown Act that was passed in Texas because you know, they actually were the authors of that bill. And they have said very publicly, they were in court with the family, that the Crown Act, based on their legislative intent, does cover someone like Daryl George. Yet, uh, the family was not successful in getting an injunction that would have prevented the school from blocking his attendance in, in the classroom. The court, obviously not convinced, and move forward with setting this case for trial. Are you surprised that this, this case has, you know, not been resolved out of court, that, that here we are almost a year into this, and this young man has to now go and sit in a courtroom and, and try to plead his case? I, I am very surprised, and I'm, I'm, I'm troubled, really. And, and just to take a step back to sort of set some foundational context about what's going on in Texas, and particularly at this school district, um, so the Legal Defense Fund does not represent Daryl George or his family. He's represented by a different attorney. However, we understand, and I'm sure Representative Bowers, who was on your um, your call earlier, understands that the Texas Crown Act was inspired, at least in part, by our clients who have an ongoing lawsuit against the same school district. Our clients, DeAndre Arnold and Caden Bradford, um, they both attended schools in Barbers Hill Independent School District for the majority 
um, and really all of their education. And they both had long walks, similar to Daryl. Um, and so given the nature of these circumstances, it's surprising because we think it's quite evident that this act protects the targeting of students with long locks, as well as braids, afros, other protective and culturally significant styles, given that it was enacted as inspired by our clients with those um, hair formations. I think previously when the law um, was being debated in the Texas legislature, they referred, it, re referred to it as the DeAndre Law, DeAndre's Law. Um, and the Crown Act is really a direct and explicit repudiation of dress and grooming codes that target students for wearing culturally significant styles like long hairstyles. And so it is, it's it's a shock. Um, you know, we are battling these forms of discrimination as they change through time, day by day. That's what we do at the Legal Defense Fund. Um, so it's troublesome, but we we definitely continue the fight. So what's the status of the actions brought by the Legal Defense Fund for the two young men that you identify who wear their hair in a similar way as uh, Daryl George? Correct. Um, our clients, both DeAndre Arnold and Kanan Bradford, had long locks and they were subject to the policy at Barbers Hill Independent School District. That policy disrupted um, DeAndre's ability to join his classmates for graduation, to walk across the stage. This stellar student that had, you know, really no infractions with getting in trouble other than sort of targeting and disruption from his hair was not able to walk with his peers and graduate. Thankfully, that lawsuit that we filed included a preliminary injunction, which allowed Caden Bradford, which is DeAndre's younger cousin, to proceed through Barbers Hill um, without the policy being um, enforced against him for his junior and senior year of high school. So he was he was able to graduate without disruption um, as this case proceeds through through the federal courts. But um, well, it's the case now. So DeAndre Arnold graduated. Mr. Bradford was allowed to stay in school and to graduate with his class. So are you at in the discovery phase? Like what phase of the lawsuit are you in? That is a tremendous question. We are in in the discovery phase. A particular discovery order was recently actually appealed to the Fifth Circuit. So um, we are waiting to wait out those issues before our case um, actually proceeds for, for trial in the future. So what is it that the school district, their policy, and I guess I'm reading their policy, and is it this, this line at the end of what I'm reading, I don't know where it comes in the actual policy, but it says that would allow the hair to extend below the top of a t-shirt collar, below the eyebrows, or below the earlobes when let down. Is that kind of the phrase that all of these, these three cases are turning on, this concept of your locks can't be longer than your eyebrow or your collar if you took them out of a ponytail or you took them out of you know some kind of bun that you may have. Is that the issue here? So we look at the hair policy in its totality, and in its totality, we see a couple of things. We see that due to the language of the hair policy, students, particularly Black and Indigenous students and other students of color, are not able to maintain, right? They cannot practically maintain culturally significant hairstyles due to the language and the policy as looked at in totality. Um, we also compiled some research when we initially filed our case on behalf of Mr. Arnold and Mr. Bradford in 2020 that showed that 
um, due to those provisions, the dress code was um, disproportionately enforced against Black students in the school district. Um, and so we, we're not narrowing down to any particular circumstance. What we are seeing in totality with both the language and the enforcement of this hair, this hair policy is that it appears that um, students of color are not able to maintain culturally significant hairstyles. Um, and at least when we did our research in the past, it was disparately enforced or disproportionately enforced against students of color, particularly Black students. And I think this is extremely important really to hone in on. So what the Crown Act does, which the Crown Act wasn't actually law in Texas when we filed our original lawsuit, but what the Crown Act does is it really clarifies that this sort of targeting, right? Any sort of language in dress and grooming codes that may, that targets particularly culturally significant hairstyles um, is considered race discrimination, right? The Crown Act clarifies that unequivocally. So whether you cut and paste different language, at the end of the day, we understand the Crown Act to say that, you know, whether on paper or as applied. So in practice, if these sorts of policies target, discriminate, single out Black students, it's against the law. Well, let me ask you this. So do you know how many school districts in this area, this Houston area, maybe even the whole state of Texas, have similar dress code policies that address how students wear their hair? I mean, is this pervasive? Are, there, are these school uh, dress code policies, uh, you know, prevalent in this area? So what we're seeing specifically in Texas and actually across the nation is that for the school districts that do have this sort of language, they are opening their eyes and they're learning about how these policies can have the effect of targeting Black students, Indigenous students, and other students of color. Um, and we've seen student or we've seen school districts really take initiative, um, examine, and eliminate any sort of language which could right, have- but I'm just trying to find out are policies like this prevalent in school districts throughout Texas, or you can broaden it to across the country? I'm just trying to understand, are these prevalent? Before you get to changing them, do they exist? Is this a big deal? They do exist. And I think it is a big deal when we consider what these policies effectuate, correct? So, so, okay, so hold on a second. I'm just trying to understand, and I think frame this because it, I'm having a hard time understanding this. So if these policies are prevalent, and you said lots of school districts, is it... Is under your interpretation of the Crown Act, would any natural style, any style of black student wanted to wear their hair in, would they be protected under the Crown Act? Let's say they want to have dreadlocks that you know were below their behind or something. Would that be a protected hairstyle under the Crown Act? We understand the Crown Act to protect all culturally significant hairstyles. So if a student can articulate or if the public can articulate how a particular style is significant to a particular culture or heritage, then it would be protected under the Crown Act. And so but what you said, if, if who can articulate it, the student or the community, you said? Correct. So how does that work as a practical matter? So I go to a school, they have a dress code about that includes some language about hair, hair length or hair texture, however these codes are, are typically written, I have dreads that are, you know, down below my, they fall below my uh, shoulders. I come into the school. Do I then have to go into the principal's office and say, look, I've looked at the dress code. 
and this is a culturally significant hairstyle and based on the crown act i'm not bound by what's in your dress code language i think what's important here and, and how you characterize it is that we should not put this onus on students right we should well, not try to understand how does it happen we should not burden students in always having to proactively communicate the significance of their hair, their culture, their heritage. School districts really should take initiative in understanding the differences and embracing the differences in their student body and really uplifting different cultures and heritages and eliminating any sort of provisions that could deter a student from expressing their identity. I agree with you, but I'm just trying to understand if you're in a place that doesn't, they're not as evolved, they're not doing what you've said in terms of evaluating their policies and making changes. I'm just trying to understand as a practical matter, if you're a parent and you find yourself in one of these situations, is it enough for you to go into the school if they have not done exactly what you said to say, I believe my son or daughter is protected under the Crown Act and should be allowed to wear his or her hair however they choose it. Is Absolutely. If a student, if a parent chooses to advocate for their child, um, we absolutely encourage that. We have resources on our website describing um, what the Crown Act protections cover, as well as um, why is it important for these protections. And so if a parent sees a dress or grooming code that has um, or language that bars a particular culturally significant hairstyle, um, they should absolutely flag that for the school and encourage the school to change those policy because black hair is truly an expression of identity and culture. Yeah, and when we come forward, we'll talk about how uh, the, the definition of culturally significance gets defined broadly and then what you anticipate the evidence will be in this case involving uh, Mr. George because there seems to be some disputes about, again, what the school is allowed to do, obviously, versus what the Crown Act uh, permits an employer or a school district to do. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back, and I am joined by Patricia Okanta. She is with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and we're talking about the Crown Act. And how it is applied, particularly in the case of an 18-year-old student at a Houston uh, area school district who has been barred from returning to the class since, according to the school district, he has violated their grooming policy by having dreadlocks that they say uh, aren't in compliance with this dress code. And uh, Patricia, I'm still trying to understand the, if you know, what the school's argument is. I was asking uh, the representatives from Texas, the state legislature that were responsible for enacting the Crown Act, if they had an understanding of what, you know, how the school district views its policy and how they believe it is consistent with uh, the Crown Act. Now, I know you said the Crown Act wasn't enacted at the time that you or the uh, defense fund filed the first claim against the school districts for two other uh, young African-American students but do you have a sense about, you know, what the school's argument is as it relates to how their policy complies with the Crown Act? You know, this is a point we are a little unclear about as well, because as I've mentioned previously, the statute unequivocally prohibits discrimination based on hair texture, hair type, and hair formation. And so clearly, if a student is unable to wear their locks, a culturally significant hairstyle, 
it does not seem as in line and in step with the policy. Our understanding is that the school district has either misunderstood or um, or is misinterpreting the scope and the intention of the hair policy. That may be a, a, a willful, a willful misunderstanding as I'm sure Representative Bowers, Representative Reynolds, other folks that have drafted that, you know, put the pen to the paper to enact this act um, have stated time and time again, this act clearly protects against any sort of policy that would target students with culturally significant hairstyles like locks. And so I can't speak for the school district and their understanding of this policy, but I think the policy is quite clear. And I think that the legislators that unanimously, which is important to emphasize, right? This was a unanimous passing and enactment of a law um, have been clear as to the protections of the act. It was again, inspired by students that attended BHISD and had long locks. It's unequivocal, it is clear. Hairstyles that are protective, hairstyles that are culturally significant are protected under this law. You know, it's interesting, uh, one of the state reps said that she had been uh, urged by some to amend the statute to include the word length. Uh, She said that one of the arguments that she is hearing or has heard about why the school district may believe that it is not in violation of the Crown Act is because apparently the word length, uh, i.e. meaning how long someone's hair is, is not included in the statute. Uh, now, she says, of course, consistent with what you're saying, that by no means uh, does the statute uh, is intended, is the statute intended to, you know, parse out the types of culturally significant or protective hairstyles that someone would wear and that every single word uh, not being in the statute does not mean that it can be interpreted to have, you know, to mean that that Uh, hairstyle in particular should be excluded. Have you heard that argument as well that, well, maybe they should just amend it to say that a school district, you know, can't have a policy or that the Crown Act covers the length of someone's hair? So I think, you know, what I mentioned earlier, that the statute's been quite clear, the the drafters of the bill and the now enacted legislation has been quite clear to the extent they want to further clarify it. we, We welcome it. We welcome also Um, We recently joined 12 other civil rights organizations to um, urge the Texas Education Agency and other enforcement agencies in Texas to offer guidance to the extent that school districts need clarification, um, offer this guidance to to ensure that they do not um, stand in the way of the protections of the act. But I think an important point here that that maybe some folks that are missing may be missing is that even grooming policies that appear neutral on their face but have a discriminatory impact on Black or Indigenous or other students of color may also um, be in a violation of the act. So, for instance, if there are gender-specific hair length restrictions that may disproportionately impact male students of color, um, that would also be in violation of this act. It does not have to be um, solely in the express language of a policy that bans locks, braids, other culturally significant styles um, in order for that policy to be in violation of the act. Even a neutral policy that in effect has a disproportionate disproportionate impact on students of color um, is also in violation of the act. And so that is something that um, is clear that to the extent school districts need clarification on that we have offered plenty of materials and resources. We really urge 
um, our enforcement agencies in the state of Texas to also issue resources to offer that clarification. But again, um, willful ignorance about the significance of particular particular hairstyles or the protections offered, um, the really broad and expansive pr protections offered um, by the Texas Crown Act does not absolve a school district or any other individual from meeting the requirements of the law. Yes, and one final point I want to talk about is this culturally uh, significance. Who decides that? So if a white student says, you know, I'm wearing my hair long because culturally this is significant to me, like, are they allowed to make that same claim? I think we can look to a lot of factors as to what is determined to be culturally significant. If we look specifically in the text of the Crown Act, they outline some styles that may be culturally significant. But I think we can also look to, you know, public information, popular culture. With things like locks, long locks, braids, afros, there is no dispute that those styles are culturally significant to the Black identity. Really dating back to the 15th century, um, you know, hair wasn't only, only a cosmetic concern for Black people. It's been a social, aesthetic, and really spiritual significance intrinsic to Black folks ac across this country. So um, we, when, we, when we're speaking specifically, specifically about Black identity, Afros, braids, twists, they have long, long served as a source of cultural pride and tradition, um, as well as cultural and religious expressions. And so I can't speak specifically on what a, a, a hypothetical student may or may not argue about the significance of their styles. But if we look to history, if we look to popular culture with the natural hair movement, um, if we look to um, religious and other cultural significant indicators, it is clear that particular styles um, often worn by Black people have a cultural and racial significance. Uh, and final uh, question for you, Patricia, have you seen other school districts outside of Texas grapple with uh, how they uh, deal with their grooming policies, uh, particularly in states? where there has been enactment of a Crown Act. California has a Crown Act. I know there are uh, you know, a huge number of states now that are enacting Crown Acts. Is this happening in other places or is this kind of a limited situation in Texas? It is happening in other places. And, and part of it is just a lack of education. Um, school districts may not know or may not intend to harm students in this way. So to the extent we can educate parents, school districts, other advocates about the harms that these sorts of policies have on children, um, the, the racial stereotypes in which these sorts of policies perpetuate. Um, school districts that we have encountered that we sort of flag these things for them are quick to make changes. Well, thank you so much, uh, Patricia, for your insights. Thank you for the work that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund is doing around the country on this issue. Obviously, we're going to be watching what happens in that trial next month of 18-year-old Daryl George, uh, see what the outcome of, of that hearing is, see if he's allowed to go back to school, which is our hope for him, uh, and hope that the school district uh, does amend its policies so that you know the next student that wants to wear a, a natural hairstyle or protective hairstyle doesn't have to become the face of some entire movement. I can only imagine what uh, Daryl George and his family has gone through as a result of this uh, very, very high profile, you know, very, very uh, talked about case. Uh, again, thank you for joining me and uh, good luck to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund on these issues. 
Uh, stay with us when we come forward. Uh, more of today's breaking and trending news right here on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And earlier in the show, I talked about this uh, bipartisan tax bill uh, and the fact that one of our senators, Senator Grassley from Iowa, basically said the quiet part out loud and basically said, don't pass this bill, Congress, because if you do so, you are going to be helping Joe Biden. Uh, this is an election year, according to Grassley. And in this year, we don't want to do anything, according to him, that would help Joe Biden, even if it was for the benefit of the country. Because according to Grassley and others, the main goal in this year is to return Donald Trump to the White House uh, to try to regain control of the Senate and to maintain control of the House uh, with even a larger GOP margin. So Grassley was out uh, along with others, uh, really encouraging lawmakers to ignore their obligation ignore their fiduciary, yes, I'll call it fiduciary duty to their constituents to vote on a piece of legislation that would enhance the lives, that would improve the lives of their constituents. Well, in some breaking news, and contrary to Senator Grassley's uh, wishes, the House has passed a bipartisan tax bill, and they did it, yes, in an election year. Now, this doesn't mean that this bill is going to be signed into law this year before the election, but it is a huge, huge step in the right direction. This bipartisan, and, and that word is, is almost hard to repeat because we've not seen this Congress, this U.S. Congress, be able to do very much of anything that involve votes by both Republicans and Democrats. They have been so splintered, uh, so divided, that even common sense things uh, have eluded them. But today, uh, in history-making fashion, the House approved a $78 billion tax package. Now, again, this is with a large bipartisan margin. This effort uh, is a test of this dysfunctional Congress and its ability to get anything done for the people. These numbers are somewhat staggering. Now, 357 to 70, which means that it, you know, garnered votes from both Republicans and Democrats. Only 47 Republicans voted against it, and only 23 Democrats voted against it. Uh, you may be asking, why am I so excited about this bill? Well, I am so excited about this bill because even though it does extend some tax cuts uh, for big businesses and provides uh, some benefits to businesses, this bipartisan bill also provides some urgent, urgent tax relief for working families, families that I care about, people that I care about, people that you care about. And in this bill, there are some tax relief and some benefits for families, as well as some benefits for small businesses. And we know the Democrats have gotten a bad rap, uh, particularly uh, a bad reputation, I should say, uh, on this issue of who is better for the economy. And there's this myth uh, that's really been pervasive uh, that somehow Republicans are better on the economy than Democrats. And the Democrats just want to spin, spin, spin. And that these trickle down economic theories that Republicans have somehow uh, are better for middle class and working class people. 
And the Republicans' theory is that if we give tax breaks to the biggest companies, if we don't make big corporations pay their taxes, if we don't make these multi-billionaires pay their taxes, then guess what? Maybe some of their wealth, some of their benefits will trickle down to workers, will trickle down to everyday people. And despite that myth being uh, perpetuated for years and decades, it's just not true. It's simply false. And there is no evidence that Republicans are better for the economy. And quite frankly, the evidence is contrary to that. What we do know about Republicans is that when they have control of the House and the Senate and the White House, they pass legislation that benefits other wealthy people. And that so-called trickle-down economic theory uh, that was taught at my undergraduate college, the University of Chicago, it never happens. It's not. CEOs don't make more profit, shareholder profit, get bigger paycheck paychecks for those in the C-suite, and then get super generous and decide, you know what, since I already have a $50 million compensation package, I think I'm going to raise the wages of my workers. I think I'm going to pay my mid-level managers more money. Again, big myth doesn't happen. What they do is buy more private jets. They buy more yachts. They do uh, you know, those things that keep the wealthy ultra wealthy and keep squeezing and squeezing middle-class families and working-class families and even make it harder for those families that live in poverty. Uh, so I'm excited about this bipartisan legislation, and I hope to get you excited about it because maybe uh, that will cause all of you to contact your senators to tell them that they need to pass this legislation because it's leaving the House and it's going to go over to the Senate where it's going to face some fierce opposition because we already know how folks like Chuck Grassley feel about enacting any legislation that in his narrow mind is going to help Joe Biden. And that's what a lot of people hate about our politics. They say, look, you know, politicians aren't there to serve people. They are there to serve themselves and do that which is going to keep the powerful class in power. And I just hope that this is one of these years and one of these times where uh, that, uh, that we're able to undermine that and that we see the opposite happen, that senators in the Senate will once and for all look at people, everyday people, and do something, do something, do that which they were sent to the Senate to do, and that is vote for a bill that's going to improve the lives of working class people. Now, one of the provisions in this, you know, massive piece of legislation is restoring the child tax credit. You guys remember the tax credit? Remember when Biden was first elected, uh, we had control of the House. He was able to get a tax credit passed that allowed uh, more than 35% of children living in poverty to be brought out of poverty because cash money was being uh, paid to families, uh, a lot of single families, a lot of single moms were able to get uh, tax credit actually in the form of compensation. Uh, some parents were getting as much as $300 per child. And we know that that money was spent on childcare, was spent on food and diapers and those necessities that parents need. 
Well, this tax credit that's included in this massive bipartisan bill is not going to be as generous as the tax credit uh, under Joe Biden, uh, but it will, it will restore some benefits to families. It will uh, help bring some children out of poverty and it will help those families that are struggling to make ends meet. And so there's that's reason enough for me to get behind it and to celebrate it because I know how difficult it is for families. I, I have a run, run a nonprofit. I work with families that live in low-income communities and I know how families struggle to make ends meet even when we are experiencing record uh, high employment and even when Black uh, unemployment rates are as low as they have ever been or definitely been in our lifetime, there are still lots of families who live on a margin, lots of families that need help, that cannot make their monthly rental payments, their car payments, their insurance payments, and put food on the table. So I just hope that Chuck Grassley uh, is outvoted. I hope that his voice is silenced. I hope that his cynicism about enacting legislation, bipartisan uh, legislation that can benefit working class families. I, I hope that cooler heads and more reasonable heads in the Senate prevail and that Republicans and Democrats will get behind this $78 billion tax package that is going to benefit, again, uh, working class families, small businesses, uh, yes, it's not everything we want as Democrats, but being an activist and being a legislator are two different things. And the language of activism and the language of governance are different. And the language of governance is compromise. And that means that our lawmakers often have to give up something. And in this case, extending some tax benefits to wealthy people and corporations in order to get something for working class people. So politics and government, not perfect. But this is an example of Republicans and Democrats coming together and doing something that's going to benefit families. And I want to celebrate this and I want to encourage you to call your senators, Republicans and Democrats, and urge them to vote for this because Joe Biden has said if it makes it to his desk, he will sign it into law. And checks could be in the mail to working class families this year. All right, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining me. We will be back tomorrow at the same time. So make sure you tune in for Reba Martin in real time. The next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Don't touch that dial.